Hello and welcome to the seventh Adamola Bookman podcast. I'm recording here from my pillow fort with my friend John Coughlin. Hi, Johnny. Hi, Al. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And this week, we've been doing Leaving Las Vegas. Is it? No. Going <laughs> spotting? No. It's Back from the Brink, Paul McGrath's autobiography. <laughs> yeah. Back from the Brink. I'm not sure he was back from the brink. No, he's but, he's he's not back from the brink. He's teetering, teetering on the edge of it. Yeah. Al, this book was recommended by Galway United's own Colum Horgan this weekend. He's this Friday. He's playing against Paul McGrath's old team, St. Patrick, St. Patrick's Athletic. That's fun, isn't it? Well, that is a nice little uh, bit of kismet. Yeah. Well, thank you very much indeed, Colm, for the many laughs you gave us <laughs> over this past couple of weeks. What a joyful book. Love yes. And good luck against St. Pat. Okay, so I complained about Didier Drogba. There being too much football in the last book. Well, there's barely any football in this one. So, Johnny, Paul McGrath, there's an introduction. And he's described as unquestionably Ireland's most popular sportsman. Now, do, is that your view? There's, certain, there's a certain affection towards McGrath that is maybe unique in a way amongst, I'm talking about football fans now, really. I mean, you know, Keane is probably a bigger, Roy Keane, that is, is probably has a bigger status or profile, but that's a different relationship as well. And it's also complicated by what happened in 2002. He's not universally liked, but McGrath is universally liked. There's something about this kind of the fact that he's this flawed and damaged character. And I don't know, there's something about him that, yeah, I don't know, touches. <laughs> we're, we're, we're very fond of him for, for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. Fergie likes him, likens him to George Bester. Yeah, exactly. Uh, very yeah. flawed genius. So, Paul McGrath, he's not before my time, but he is a little bit. I think he's... Same. A little bit. Like, in his club career, yeah, but, you know, I'm, I remember him for his for his Ireland highlights, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what does he mean to you, Paul McGrath, Johnny? Well, you know, he's part of that team. You know, he mentions it in the book, obviously, that Ireland had never qualified for anything until 90, 1988. And then between 1990, 1988... In 1994, and they qualified for three tournaments, so one Euros and two World Cups. Yeah, I think it kind of really kind of <laughs> created some kind of like football awakening, if you want. You said he's a bit before your time. Like the World Cup in 1990, that's really some of my first memories. And it really, when Ireland has been in World Cups, it's really taken a hold of the country in a kind of a crazy, crazy way. And, and he talks about it in the book, that it would be difficult to explain to colleagues in England how they created this kind of pandemonium in Ireland in competitions where like in 1990, they didn't even win a game. In uh, 1994, they won one game and they lost two. So yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing really. Um, but yeah, like I guess for a small country, just to be on the international stage, um, whatever, I guess it really caught the public imagination. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, he says he came back after 1990 with the three draws and they, they had a proper open bus celebration around dublin yeah and he talks about the other one in 1994 which i was at which boys on played at 
that's pretty exciting, wasn't it? But uh, and he said that the plane banked around Dublin so they could look down on this, you know, mass of people who'd come to welcome home for this com- uh, from the from the World Cup. And you know that that game, and it's also what he starts within the book. That game against Italy in 1994, when he played with um, his arm hanging limply by his side is kind of that is really remembered as his his kind of greatest Ireland Ireland performance when yeah, we so beat the Italians in in Giant Stadium where were you uh, where were you watching that game Johnny I was on a family holiday in Portugal oh were you yeah I was in a family holiday in Cyprus and I didn't watch the game. Indeed, I didn't watch a single fucking game from uh, the 94 World Cup. <laughs> guess what? England didn't qualify, so I didn't care. And you've been at everyone since, though, haven't you? <laughs> yes, we have. Yeah, yeah, no, I was very much that way. My team get locked out of the FA Cup? Don't care. England not yeah. in it? Don't care. Yeah, well, fair enough. I um, Just before we get into the book, will you indulge me one thing, Al? I sure um, will. I think there's probably a few things that uh, Irish people enjoy more than English people not being able to pronounce Irish things. So I'm going to spell a place name from this book to you, and I want you to try and pronounce it. Oh, I got a pen on me. Fine. Okay. Far away. So D-U, and like an accent, you know, we call it a fada. D-U-N is one word. Yeah. And then the second word is L-A-O-G-U. H A I R E. That's you know two words. So can you pronounce that for me? Dunlagawa. <laughs> One more time. Dunlagawa. Mm. No, it's not that. That's Dunleary. Dunleary. Oh, of course it is. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It was the G that threw me off. Yeah. Anyway. Thank you. <laughs> Well, Irish people enjoy that. Maybe Irish people have enjoyed me doing my Irish accent. Shall I do that? Yeah, go on. <laughs> no, I won't, Johnny. I won't. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so Paul McGrath, um, back from the brink from 2006, which uh, he he wrote just as his career had kind of finished. At the end of the book, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's stopped playing. And I think the whole thing is, like, as we mentioned, the book is called Back from the Brink, but... I think the book, even when it ends, he's kind of, he's not really sure where he is in his life. And I think, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an optimistic title if you want. Uh, but I understand McGrath as well now. Like I was looking online and he seems to be well. I, 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 he's not in the news very much, McGrath, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I also had a look up. Uh, yeah, we had some. He has had some problems in the intervening years, but nothing for ten years, right? I think he seems. He thinks seems fairly solid. He was a, you know, football supporting Englishman. Like, what would you think of Paul McGrath? I remember him a bit for Villa, but I can't say I was really, really like intent on watching Villa in the mid to early nineties. There are more interesting, more successful teams at the time. But yeah, I've always known him to be a really super, super defender. Um, I, I just didn't realise McGrath's boozing. It really wasn't boozing, was it? it was, it's, he's a sick, sick fellow, and like it's brought him nothing but grief. You know, I don't know why, but when I read the, uh, books of footballers of a certain vintage, you know, the kind of nights out are are kind of part of the, the fun. But and there's lots of nights out in this, but they ain't much fun. No, it is. It's sordid, isn't it? It's a sordid mm. story. It's. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's this not... is a man who can't control himself. He doesn't doesn't really seem to have any friends. Mm. Real friends. He has a lot of people who he hangs around with, but I mean, it always strikes me. I mean, his friends were always enabling him. I know that's a modern word, but they all were, right? It was like, ah, my old pal there would pass me the vodkas to hide it from the boss. It's like, well, maybe we shouldn't have been passing you the vodkas. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose one of the things, one of the common themes in the book, I suppose, is, well, firstly, the book is unusual in that it's, obviously, McGrath is the main voice in the book, but it's shrouded every couple of pages there's a paragraph from somebody who was around at the time you know his mother his son but a lot of the times it's the people who are around you know the ferguson uh, is is there in the united years kevin Moore come uh, shows up a lot it's unusual but what quite a few of them and and Moran in particular says a couple of times like, like he just didn't really know the depths of it you know like so mcgrath was obviously quite good at hiding uh, hiding his problems yeah, yeah, he was. And, you know, from the outside looking in, it just looks, seems like fun scrapes. I mean, like, it's kind of stories you'd retell when you're 20s. It's like you never guess where I ended up, and it would be laughs and japes. But for him, it's not, because once he started drinking, he really didn't know where he's going to end up. There was a quote from Ron Atkinson towards the end of the book, which I thought was kind of really, after reading, like, it's right at the end, and I thought it was kind of summed up McGrath. Really well, so I'm just going to read it to you. Paul was different, shy, basically. I've always said that you could tell he, you could tell him he was playing against Signore, Maradona, Inrush, any of them. It's not a problem. Sure, ah, grand boss. But I remember we asked him to go to a junior school once just to present these medals because he was a god at Villa then. Everyone wanted him. Everyone loved him. We're telling him all you've got to do is say well done and shake their hands. But he was adamant. Can't do it, boss. And he couldn't. He reckoned he'd panicked. So he never went to the school. Like it's incredible, isn't it? Like to have this kind of, I guess, dual personality in a way where you're just tightened when you're playing football, but then you can't like stand in front of like whatever twenty kids. It's it's quite it's quite incredible, really. Yeah, intense social anxiety. So let's can we go right back to the start? So he was born of his mother Betty and a Nigerian immigrant, is that right? Yeah, so his mother, um, yeah, got got pregnant with a with an African man, and and then he kind of just he he didn't want anything to do with it. And this was in Dublin in the nineteen fifties. McGrath was born in nineteen fifty nine. You couldn't think of a much worse kind of circumstance uh, for Betty to to find herself freely in in an extremely white and in an extremely conservative society. Yeah, so she went off to London to have him. Yeah, that's right, and she was. Uh pressure to give him up for adoption and uh she does yeah initially she was going to give him up in in england i think but then i think she managed to negotiate bringing him back to dublin and it's really really quite a horrible scene isn't it this uh, young girl she was very young at the time coming back on the boat she'd made the decision to give the child for adoption and then she's connecting with the child obviously as they come home and but there's, there's these nuns waiting for her when she arrives in Dublin and they take the baby from her. It's horrible. Yeah, and he goes to a place called the Smiley Trust. Yeah, so the Smiley Trust, uh, you know, not, not that anyone would know, like, but like it's a kind of a Protestant-run um, charity that runs these kind of homes for, for, yeah, for orphans. 
And this sounds like a, a, just a very, very sad childhood. He, he feels unwanted. His mother subsequently has another child, a daughter, Akune, with, with a different African immigrant. Is that right? Exactly, yeah. And this child has a lot of problems, but the mother hangs on to Akune. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, so Paul obviously felt doubly, doubly betrayed because his mother was there with another child when she feels she can't, couldn't look after him. And it really is a sad childhood, and it seems uh, the only real joy he got was when he was booting a football around. He had a terrible, tough time. He, like, the first place he was in was called the Bird's Nest, and he said that violence was routine. He learned later that some kids were sexually abused, but this is not something that he, he experienced himself. But he wet the bed routinely until he was 16, and he, was, he said the thing that really caused him a lot of anxiety growing up was these morning inspections when they'd have to kind of present their sheets for kind of inspection. And yeah, it just sounds absolutely uh, appalling. And he was here on, until he was um, 16 and then he went to another home run by, run by the same, same crowd, this uh, Smiley's Trust. But this is where he really starts playing football and all. In fact, he, he's a, a lot happier at this home. In fact, other kids and other friends of his start hanging around this home what what I found interesting and sad, obviously, but interesting is that he says that if you if you're brought up in this kind of environment, as much as you might hate the kind of institution and where you are, you do become institu institutionalized, and you become reliant on the the structures, I suppose, and the routine. And one thing that struck me anyway was like when he this last place he was in was called Racefield. Um, and when he was preparing to leave Racefield, he was kind of nervous about it. But when he did lose, when he didn't leave, he had a total breakdown. So he, he, he's leaving institutionalized care for the first time in his life, moving into this flat. And he just kind of had a breakdown and ended up in a, like a mental health facility, a psychiatric ward. It's you... genuinely shocking in the book. It's genuinely shocking. I mean, he becomes catatonic for, for months on end. The month yeah. end, just this football career was kicking off. He it's said people crazy. had to come over to uh, smooth his bed sores and stuff. He's there, wouldn't speak. It's he doesn't make as much of it as I think he could in terms of how incredibly tra traumatizing that must have been for him. Like if he was on American Idol, he'd be making a much bigger song and dance about it. I I was catatonic. <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't do any of that. There's uh, oh, there's very little self pity, which is which is great. Yeah, it's a real stuff, stiff upper lip stuff, uh, Al, isn't it? As you say, he doesn't make like he he says that like um, visitors. He was in this hospital, Saint Vincent, Saint Vincent's. And visitors would come, like friends, family, or whatever, and they'd find him naked, like covered in his own, like covered in his own piss, you know. And so it was like he had this severe breakdown and. He wasn't being kept in, in in good conditions whatsoever. And eventually he was moved out to his mother's home and it happened again, like he was kind of recovering and then it, he, he broke down again. So, and yeah, I'd say like what's really incredible is like within a period of months from like, as you say, being catatonic, being mute, he was playing for Manchester United, like a remarkable change of circumstances. Yeah, I mean, they... Obviously, this this uh, period where he is catatonic is in the book, but it's never really explained. It's just something that happened. And then within, yeah, as you say, within weeks or months, there he is, off to United. And sorry, the thing that I, the point I was trying to make earlier is like something that I noticed in the book, 
when there were changes in his life subsequently managers coming and going changing club he did seem to have breakdowns as well so it was like he was repeating that pattern when he left the inst- like it's like when he became comfortable in it because he's got this incredible social anxiety like incredible social anxiety and when he settles into a pattern and a situation that he's comfortable with you know he's happy and when that breaks he seems to have these breakdowns that that was uh, that was a common theme in the book i noticed that it seemed that a lot like he he has these episodes so regularly that you'd lose count but a lot of them do seem to coincide when when he has a change of circumstance personal or professional yeah, that's right. He certainly took a uh, leaving clubs and changing managers very hard, very hard indeed. When you, you know, I guess as a footballer, you got to expect that. But if there's a if there's a, a shining knight in this book, Ron Atkinson seems like a nice man, doesn't he? <laughs> Ron Atkinson comes across great, doesn't he? He really yeah. does. Yeah, and obviously it, later later his 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 he was a uh, you know he had kind of a race uh, racism uh, a scandal, didn't he? Um, he certainly did. But in this book, he comes across as a, a great a great guy to be around. Yeah, he's absolutely loved him. Um, yeah, his first meeting, they were negotiating a contract, right? He, did, he got very short shrift out of uh, Big Ron. Very short shrift. But he came to really genuinely love him, didn't he? He really loves Big Ron at the end. On the drinking thing, it was when he was playing um, in Dublin. He went on a, he went on a trip to Germany, uh, like a, a tour his team and that's the first time he he drank and i think from the very start he couldn't really handle drinking in the sense that he drank to be paralytic you know he went to germany he drank for a couple of weeks thought this is great because it helped them deal with this anxiety um but then he came back and he just kind of said okay he didn't drink for a while for whatever reason yeah it's also funny but he goes back on holiday with his friend back yeah. to the exact same place he's been to. He's like, I'll tell you a nice place for a holiday. Germany. Let's <laughs> this, go there. This kind of uh, like industrial town in the in the Roar Heartland. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been there and I liked it personally. So, uh, yeah, it's a great spot. And it turns out it wasn't as good the second time round when he went without his football team. <laughs> it was very strange thinking. <laughs> yeah, I went there once. Yeah, I think we should go again. Does Norman Whiteside mean much to you? Yeah, I'm very conscious of Norman Whiteside. He's what, the youngest player to score a goal at the World Cup, or at least he was. Yeah. Uh, and he he immediately befriends Paul McGrath, right? He immediately befriends him. He says, like, uh, oh, do you want me to do my Northern Irish accent? No, I won't <laughs> do it. But, <laughs> but then, like, it's bad enough you're a Protestant from Dublin, but you're black as well. And uh, Paul McGrath loves this. Paul McGrath loves this, and he quickly becomes his best friend right under atkinson united never finished below fourth but they never finished above third and they won the fa cup twice and the the few people who 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 speak in the book like i say kevin moran and um, frank and staple frank stapleton these guys they were saying that like they really had a pretty brilliant team and you know comparable they thought in terms of players to, to the liverpool team at the time but yeah maybe it was the boozing that was holding them back yeah, it sounds like because they they refer to it. They 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 tell Ron Atkinson, "Hey, love his Liverpool lads are big drinkers too," but Ron's like, "Yeah, but they get it done on the pitch." Yeah. Or lads, try not drinking so much and see if you do better. Did you enjoy uh, another Steve McMahon incident in the in the book? 
I was happy to see Steve McMahon. He always comes up in the villain role as well, doesn't he? Uh, <laughs> Every yeah. time. Every time, yeah. yeah. It's like, got a good word for Steve McMahon. It's like football book bingo. Someone delighted to hurt Steve McMahon. Ding. There's kind of a theme, with the exception of Ferguson, I suppose. Managers throughout McGrath's career ultimately forgave him his his sins because he performed. And At- Atkinson was no different, like... He um he'd be ap- apoplectic with uh, McGrath over the booze, but it would never really last. Like McGrath tells a tells a story there where they went to Swaziland, interesting in itself, for a for a, for a preseason trip, and they're playing against Spurs, and he drank twelve pints on the day of the on the day of the game. <laughs> what? Yeah, they <laughs> do. And uh, that's it. Ron says, "Go on, get out there. Go on, you do a great job." They were. They seem to have been good. And like, I suppose, like Whiteside would have been very good. Like Robson, obviously, is a very good player, but they weren't winning anything. But in 1984, they were. They were top of the top of the league with 10 games to go. They'd beaten Arsenal four 0 but then they went on a week long trip to Mallorca, <laughs> and they came back to lose two 0 against West Brom. Who were the bottom team in the league? So there you go. I think, uh, but you know, like the funny thing about it is, like uh, again, like Rod Atkinson, who's kind of just this kind of charismatic, kind of probably quite rough kind of character. He was the one who was pushing that trip to New York. <laughs> I mean, it, it's incredible, a how different the game is. But that really was pr- the prevailing wisdom at the time, right? That drinking encouraged bonding amongst team players and bonding amongst team players resulted in winning teams. But also in terms of preparation, not just drinking, it's like Racken- Atkinson would only play games, as in football games, uh, in, in training. There was nothing physical. And they said that all Liverpool ever did was five a side. <laughs> That's a lovely way to prepare for a football match. Better than Didier Drogba with three hours of stretching, like. That's a stretching. I think the Liverpool lads were having him on there because they asked him, what do you do at Liverpool? And they tell him, oh, yeah, yeah, we just do five-a-sides all day. And they're like, okie dokie, good enough for us. <laughs> but Ron paid the price for their reputation. He got the bullet in 1986. And in comes... Yeah. Fergie. Fergie. We sort of remember him warmly now, but I'll tell you what, at the time, I fucking hated that man. I fucking hated him with a passion. Why? Because he's a cheat. Fucking Fergie time. Always moaning about the ref. He was awful. He always got everything his own way. Well, how long did it go without United get, uh, get giving away a penalty at Old Trafford? Like 50 years. Like It was unbelievable. I couldn't stand Fergie. Now, well, obviously. What... There was a good, uh, an interesting related point there later in the book. So the the season that Bruce scored these two goals against Wednesday, which is obviously very famous when they won the, the Premier League for the first time, it was Villa that they were, you know, competing for it to win the league. And Atkinson says at some point that um, he spoke to Carlton Palmer, who was playing for, for, for Wednesday at the time. And Palmer asked the ref around 90 minutes, what's left ref? The ref said three minutes, and then United scored on the 98th minute. Incredible. Yeah. Ferguson came in, and that was when things had to had to change. And he is resentful. He is resentful. I think he understands why Fergie did it, but he says, oh, if he could have handled it differently, tried to get the best out of me. 
Yeah, but I, I think that's harsh. Fergie wasn't there to babysit players, was he? He was there to make Manchester United what he went on to make them. And what was interesting, I thought, was Ferguson's, both of them had kind of, were, were I think, more magnanimous maybe as the years went on. So McGrath says, as you say, he, he kind of accepts Ferguson's decision and, and, and underst understood the logic years later. And from Ferguson's point of view, he said that like, if he had dealt with this situation later in, in his managerial career, maybe he would have went about it differently. Maybe, maybe he would have given McGrath an arm around the shoulder. Yeah, was... he didn't have the authority he went on to have, did he? I mean, by no means. And that's why I guess the bad apples, they had to go. What was really interesting, I suppose, is that United tried to retire McGrath. He was still reasonably young. Was he Was he 30 or just under 30? And they tried to pay him off. They tried to give him £100,000 and get him to retire rather than rather than sell him to another team. Well, I think all Aston Villa fans and Ireland fans are happy that that didn't work out. Yeah, and it sounds like he was thinking about it. But then he spoke to his buddies and they were like, nah, don't do that. Around this time is the first time he nearly killed himself and he he got really drunk at uh, Whiteside's house. They went drinking over there and he decided to drive home and he crashed the car into a wall. And then this cycle of kind of, you know, this getting drunk, doing something really regrettable. And then, you know, this kind of, this guilt that he, that he felt afterwards, he, he took a lot of paracetamol and ended up in hospital and in the headlines, he was banned from driving. Yeah, and he must have been, he must have been very frightened about the new regime at United because uh, they had Gordon Strachan. Gordon Strachan told him that they should be afraid. This was a new, harder manager. Strachan knew his days were numbered, and I think that really got into McGrath's head. Do you know what I thought was interesting there was Strack like McGrath doesn't say this, but he says that Strachan, you know, had problems with Ferguson. But then Ferguson was obviously playing Strachan quite a bit because Strachan was kind of reporting to Ferguson on the other players, I think. That was the impression I got. Yeah, that did seem like that. But yeah, yeah. on the other hand, he was a mole. Yeah, he was a mole. Yeah. <laughs> Little mole Strachan. <laughs> so a quick word. Yeah, velocity. There it is. McGrath, and he says that going back to his time in 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 the, the orphanage he he would just kind of shut down and shut off when when people shouted at him and he felt that every interaction he had with ferguson was ferguson you know giving him the hair dryer treatment and then ferguson for his part would say that he just couldn't get any reaction out of mcgrath mcgrath would just look vacantly into space or at the ground or whatever so you know it just wasn't working for them but yeah that's it the, the days were very much numbered with fergie It was Venables initially came to, came from with um, with Spurs, but it was it was Graham Taylor at Aston Villa who got our man. And Graham Taylor had a hard time in Ian Wright's book, but by golly, is, is he lovely in this book? He's a nice man, Graham Taylor. I think that is generally accepted by all accounts. That he is a nice man, right? Yeah, he did seem like a nice man. Yeah. And an excellent football manager. And he did great at Villa with his Route 1 football. But he had a shocking start to his time at Villa. 
you know, like I say, these changes in circumstance, they just don't suit McGrath. And he was playing drunk, he was playing shit. And he said this would be the second, by my count, suicide attempt. He slid his wrists at home in front of his son, Christopher, who was only like four or five at the time. Yeah, again, and he describes it almost nonchalantly. It was just something he did. He, he talks about it possibly being a suicidal gesture. But man, you've got to be adult, eh, with your kid there. You've got to be really adult. It's it's a horrible, yeah, sad and sordid story. He turned it around in a, in a playing sense. And that year, Villa ended up finishing second. He was the Aston Villa player, like, player of the year four years in a row. And it was because of... He was only with Taylor briefly. And I think this is something that he really regrets that Taylor wasn't able to stay around because I think he was very happy in that kind of uh, in that kind of setup. But yeah, Taylor was off to, off to manage England to not qualify for the 1994 World Cup and to ruin Al's trip to Cyprus. Well, if anything, it improved my trip to Cyprus. I could well, just go. get on with my life. Hey, Joseph Inglis comes in. Um, oh, yeah, old Joe Venglos. First ever foreign manager in the Premier League. First ever foreign manager in England, right? He was a sports scientist and he was kind of, and McGrath says he was probably a bit ahead of his time, but he was very mild-mannered. And I think ultimately, you know, in a kind of a, an English football uh, dressing room at the time, this kind of like boffin type approach maybe wasn't uh, wasn't really appreciated. Yeah, so Joseph Beglos didn't last. And who do we get back? Our old friend, Big Ron. The book is a interesting and harrowing insight into addiction isn't it because you see in mcgrath this his reaction to atkinson is on the one hand okay good i like ron ron understands me ron will let me not really train i'll be in the team but then this kind of other voice in his head is saying and ron will let me drink you know that's what he's saying really to himself yeah as long as he as we've talked about before turns up on the saturday ron doesn't care and it wasn't just booze either. Like he's regularly on, you know, these kind of prescription painkillers, which he kind of lashes back like they're M and M's. Yeah, and he's uh, he also kind of admits that people who take real drugs is like, oh, I never took any of illegal drugs. Only prescription yeah. drugs for me. Good <laughs> for you. When Atkinson comes in and he's they go to to Hamburg, and he goes missing. There's search parties out to get him, but then they went to play friendly and in Dublin and this was a big deal you know because it was Villa were kind of going to Dublin because of McGrath so he was hammered and this guy Jim Walker is saying to Atkinson look he can't play he's fucked you can't play him and Atkinson is like we're kind of here because of him not only am I going to play him he's going to be captain so he goes out to play this game absolutely smashed and then there's a free kick and apparently free kick yeah, apparently McGrath, while brilliant, never really seemed to kind of, you know, overstretch himself in any sense. He did what he was very comfortable doing on the pitch. He was never, um, yeah, like some of the people say, yeah, kind of maybe they could have expected a bit more from him here or there. But, so he'd never take a free kick, but then suddenly he came, he came dashing up to take this free kick because he was drunk. And he took a really long run up and just ran up to it and kicked the ground and fell, <laughs> fell over himself. Jolly good stuff. Yeah, he does come across as that as a player because I only knew him as a centre-back, but he was a real water carrier, wasn't he? And he, 
he was always happy. He says he, you know, why don't you try and spray it around a bit? And he's like, no, I'll just, I'll just give it. I'll just give it. He is a complicated character in the sense that everybody said he was really nice. He was really humble, but there is an ego there, and he, like, he knows. Like one of the things that's consistent in the book is that he would, he would really get himself into terrible scrapes when he came back to Ireland for international matches or for personal business or whatever. But that's because he had this status. Obviously he had this in Birmingham because he was a legend in Villa as well, but in Ireland, the whole country would just love them. And like he tells one story at one stage about they're in Limerick. And at this point, he's playing under Charlton and Charlton has kind of got his number to some extent. He also indulges him, but he won't let him drink. And he has him locked in his bedroom with a man stationed outside the bedroom to stop McGrath going down from drinking. And then McGrath remembers that he got the phone number off a fan who had given him some kind of award, like, you know, player's award in Limerick. And he called up this random man and said, please bring me some drink. And your man was like, I've got some pochine, you know, so like hooch, moonshine. And um, McGrath's like, yeah, anything. So this fella, this random fella, he explains to him about the fella at the door. This random fella brings the drink to McGrath. McGrath says he opens the door, he took the took the drink from him and just slams the door in his face, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> and then just whatever drinks it, obviously. But um, yeah, again, it's 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 quite an insight into the in, into how he into addiction, I guess, and, and into how he would operate in order to get his hands on booze. All his bad actions. He always blames on being an alcoholic. It's always the alcoholic that does the bad things. It's not Paul McGrath. Do you know what I mean? It's like, mm. oh, the alcoholic in me made me do this and that. And again, I'm sure that's absolutely right. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to do him down. But yes, he doesn't. I don't think he ever takes full responsibility for exactly what he does. He does call yeah. himself a coward repeatedly, but he does give himself a pass. I think you're right. I'm, I'm absolutely sure he does. Yeah, the psychology of it is kind of, yeah, it's kind of like, it's very kind of warped in a way, isn't it? Yeah, it was that person that did that, but I'm Paul McGrath. That alcoholic did that to you. It's one of those things. It's like, and I'm sorry for what he did. Well, it was you, Paul. You were the alcoholic. One thing that's hard to keep track of is the n- number of times he tried to hurt himself and kill himself. Uh, so... He kind of deals with the Ireland career stuff a bit later, but he does talk about how in 88 they played against England and they beat England in the Euros. Now, for Ireland, like this would have been at a major competition, playing against England, beating England. Like, you know, this is like, this is like, you know, what a perfect combination for, for, an, for an Ireland team anyway. But so this elevated their status like to something I think beyond anything that any of them like really could have understood or predicted. Um, so they were all up on, on this high and they were, they were, I don't know if you've ever heard the 1990 uh, Ireland song for the world cup. No, I've not. It's, it's, it's quite good actually. <laughs> anyway, give it a last Jack. And uh, so they were, they were, they were singing this, they were, they were, um, recording this for the 1990 World Cup and he was getting smashed and then he kind of just kind of was falling over the place so Mick Byrne the the physio had to take him out and bring him home to the hotel but they're in a taxi on the way back to the hotel and just inexplicably he just tries to jump out of the moving taxi 
Again, not in his right mind, uh, not in his right mind. Anyway, okay, Premier League. The Premier League and Villa are good. Yeah, Villa were good back in the day. I never realised Dalian Atkinson was such a good player. Poor Dalian Atkinson know, is dead now. Yeah, he's dead. He was, he was murdered, wasn't he? Remember something, wasn't it? Yeah. With the cop. Yeah, he was murdered. That was terrible. Yeah, Atkinson apparently was amazing, but then he, he had an injury, and, and, and someone in the book says maybe it was Atkinson or Armagrass says that he was never quite the same afterwards. But with, with Atkinson and Saunders, they reckon they were the... Like McGrath reckons they were the best. They were the best strikers in the league at the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, uh, yeah, it's interesting that uh, he calls Dean Saunders one of his best friends in football. Dean Saunders is a total weapon, isn't he? He's an absolute tool of a man. I think he played in McGrath's testimonial, and McGrath couldn't really move, and Saunders was really, really <laughs> running rings around him, which is not what you're supposed to do in a testimonial because it was like Ireland versus the rest of the world kind of setup. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Rest of the world. <laughs> Dean Saunders. Uh, <laughs> yeah, from, from Wales. England and Wales. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's from not Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> the best of the rest of the world. It's Dean Saunders, everyone. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that was the that, that first uh, Premier League. United won the league by 10 points, but they seem to think that had they not drew to Oldham on the same day United beat Wednesday, that they would have won somehow. So, I don't know. Yeah, if that had gone that way and that had gone that way, well, and, and Atkinson with his injury as well, that's the other thing. Mm. Maybe. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Maybe Villa would have won the league. You look at the list of players, I'd say the Man United players were better. Maybe that's why Man United won the league. Yeah, Sean Teal. Who was in goal? Was it Spink? The excellently named Nigel Spink. Nigel Spink of a wonky face. Keepers in the old day looked like keepers, didn't they? Not anymore. They're like <laughs> bloody Calvin Klein models. Fucking Allison there with his beautiful face. Going back to his wife a little bit. Here, for me, he does not come across well. Not at all. I mean, he perpetually cheats on her. He has a woman in Birmingham, right? A woman in Manchester. There's women all over the place for him. I mean, this is awfully sorted. One of them was a junkie, right? And he just used to go around a house. And that's who he yeah. had a child with, I believe. Awful. But then one of his friends who he does not name, he used to leave behind in Manchester with his wife, Claire. And they eventually started a relationship, which I believe was ongoing, and certainly at the time of the writing of the book. And he is apoplectic, right? He'll never speak to this guy again. Yeah, he said, I will always detest him. I will always detest him. I mean, dude. Because Claire kind of, in spite of this absolutely appalling treatment that you describe, kind of was still looking out for him years later when, yeah, his, sec when, years his, sec later. when his second marriage fell apart. But he, um, yeah, so he, he, he got this woman pregnant he learned that it was the news. It was going. To, one of the one of the remarkable things about McGrath is how he managed to keep so many things out of the press. You know, like for years yeah, nobody, genuinely. for years nobody knew anything about his drinking problems, and it seemed like in in Ireland, you know, journalists was, were kind of knew about it and wouldn't publish things. Whereas in Eng, in England, I think maybe the Villa did a good job of keeping him, uh, keeping his, you know, his dirty laundry out of the public, but. This this new story about his his child that he knew about like this child was not a new new baby like when this was breaking that was how I interpreted it. like the baby was like a year a year and a half old no, and sure. 
and it was going to break in the news. So he had, he and Claire were about to adopt a girl from Romania and this was going to break. So he had to break the news to Claire and, you know, that was the end of their relationship. And her, then Claire had a breakdown of her own and, and had an overdose and she ended up in the Priory, which McGraw was in and out of this Priory. Yeah, can you imagine the old adoption agency? Hello? Oh, yes, yes. But the name? I don't know about that, Mr. <laughs> yeah, so and like so when she is in the Priory, uh, Paul gets with Caroline, who he subsequently marries, um, and they're married for 11 years. It's around this time that United beat Villa in the League Cup. So you have this incredible, um, you know, his life is kind of just falling apart, and there he is winning the Rumblers Cup. I think United were going for the for the treble that year, wasn't it? Um, when Andre Kanchelskis got sent off for handballing on the line in a three-one loss to Aston Villa. I think you maybe remember that better than I do. Yes, I do remember that one well. So he woke up the night before that that game in excruciating pain, and poor Jim Walker gets a bang on the door. Jim Walker's probably used to this at this stage, but he's like, Jim, no, seriously, this is not about drink. He's got this excruciating pain in his shoulder. And it's, he, he later finds out that he was diagnosed. Sorry, this wasn't 96, this was 94. He was later diagnosed with Bell's palsy, which is the symptoms are excruciating pain and kind of eventual paralysis. So by the time he played with, through this pain, then by the time they got to the to the World Cup the, for Ireland, his 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 arm was just hanging by his side. It's kind of fucking crazy, isn't it? Well, that's what you want from your heroes, isn't it? Like playing through the pain. That's the ultimate. It's like Terry Butcher with the bloody uh, the bloody rags on his head. Like that's what you want. Like look at that lad. And Nothing of course, Al Bond and his imaginary uh, European Cup wins. Presumably, your both of your arms are like just dangling down by your side, and your head is all patched up. Well, I've certainly taken a kicking. I have, like, but it's not stopped me. I've got big heart. Lovely yes. big heart. Lion, a lion man. heart. Your words, not mine, JC. Yeah. Yeah. So it, this is when he tries to kind of explain the pandemonium around the Ireland team. Maybe it was just being on the international stage for the first time or something. But yeah, the whole country, I think, was kind of inebriated by Italian 90 and, and USA 94. Everyone loves the Ireland football team, don't they? Certainly back in the day, we all loved them. Everybody loved them. Maybe not some of the English hooligans. Like, so Charlton and his team kind of had, as I said, they kind of had McGrath's number. And it's quite remarkable. So they'd be like liaising with Aer Lingus, like the national airline, <laughs> to find out which plane, like, so McGrath, because he's... You know, he's just kind of manipulative, kind of like a uh, slippery character. Wouldn't really let them know if he was coming in from Manchester, if he was coming in from Birmingham. So they had to kind of hook up with the airline to find out. Like, Yeah, it's astonishing. And Ellingus were willing to talk as they, they told him everything. Yeah. And then uh, McBurn would be just waiting in a car on the tarmac. So the airport were also part, like, part of it as well. Like, yeah, yeah, just drive out there now. Yeah, got times. in a a uh, wheelchair a few times as well like who's that oh, I don't mind that it's just an old fella <laughs> McGrabby like McGrabby like um, uh, Hannibal Lecter being brought to like international <laughs> <laughs> that really works eh? like there is lashing like uh, yeah, nice Chianti uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah there's another time with the island team and I know it's the only time that makes this funny but uh 
They're back in Dublin. There was a Brian Adams concert that <laughs> night. <laughs> Some of the young lads wanted to go. <laughs> just, oh, yeah, you see old like Phil Foden. Oh, Brian, Brian Adams is playing tonight. <laughs> Come on, Gaffer, let us go, please. Like, oh, you young whippersnappers <laughs> with your rock music. Hope you play Summer of 69. Atkinson, he got the bullet after a historically bad run for Aston Villa. But all the players thought that he'd turn it around. I think all the players were probably just you know, having a nice time and we're happy enough with Ron because Ron does sound like a whole lot of fun. He got the boot and in came Brian Little, who doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. No, not at all. He wasn't keen on McGrath from, from the start. And he signed he signed a young Tyro by the name of Garrett Southgate. In fairness to McGrath at this point, he is old, isn't he? He's like 36 by this stage. He's not trained for 10 years. Yeah, you could imagine why a manager would perhaps be looking to the future. Sorry, before we get to to Villa, we can go back to Ireland because he says that at USA '94, you know, he reckoned that Jack, Big Jack, was wasn't really didn't have the same kind of uh, hunger. He spent his whole time in America complaining about the weather, about the heat. They were down in Florida, actually. Yeah, they were in Orlando, and Jack was gone soon afterwards. They, he he was manager for the next Euros campaign, but we were put out by the Dutch in a playoff. Now, the old uh, uh, Ireland playing in Orlando, I know at least one lad who came from that game and has never gone home. I know really? At least one lad. <laughs> yeah, they loved it. And there, there are stories, like, in bars, like, uh, just the bar and the bar owner just like stick those crates again. It's just stick them, just stick them there. Don't worry about it. Just put them in like, and they're just keeping the bars open all night long. There's a few stories like that I've heard. Really? In bars around me. Yeah, but it's what can you imagine? The island in Orlando in '94. I mean, it would have been nuts. Absolutely yeah. nuts. My dad went to that. Uh, my Did he? Yeah, yeah. So when Charlton went, he said, "What, what was interesting is that like he doesn't think anyone would have." Any players would call Charlton, you know. Like he played, he played eighty-three times for for Ireland, and other than I think he said eight caps, they were all under Charlton. And he says he didn't give him a shout written to say, you know, you know, best of luck or anything like that. And he says that's just the way football is. People are always, you know, someone's always getting fired, someone's always moving on. You know, it's he says quite a brutal game. Although he remembers when people have had a kind word for him. Mm. There's a couple of occasions where players have had a kind word for him or managers, and he's like, oh, I always remember that classy move. Well, you know. It sounds like you're not as big a fan of Palmer Grass, people across the water here. No, and I don't know. I don't want to sound like that. I really don't, because I've got nothing against the lad. I just, in the book, it's just. Ooh. It's not self justification, and he's really brutally honest. I just doesn't don't think he really is accountable for some of his shittier stuff. Yeah. Charlton goes, McCarthy comes in. And uh, again, he finds himself in the same situation. McCarthy kind of had him out and then he plays him. He's, he ends up back in the team. But yeah, it's this Brian, Brian Adams concert, which kind of ends McGrath's Ireland career. This illustrious Ireland career brought 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 a premature end by a Brian, Brian Adams concert. So... He was in the hotel and there's a decision that everybody has to go to this concert. And he's like, I'm not going to a fucking Brian Adams concert. <laughs> he says, everybody has to go. And they're like, surely someone could have been like, do we really have to push McGrath to a concert? So he got um, 
he got he got hammered and he didn't travel in the end and this is exactly what you said like Mick, Mick McCarthy so there's this big scene and then Mick, Mick, Mick McCarthy comes in and says shakes his hand and says look I hope you can get the help that you need like really classy about the whole thing you know yeah exactly that Ireland moved on to a famous 3-2 loss away to Macedonia <laughs> that's more like it <laughs> yeah anyway okay Back to, so I didn't remember that Villa won the League Cup under Brian Little. No, no, nor did I, to be honest. They I have lead. no recollection of that game. I have genuinely no recollection of that game at all. It was about 1996. You're talking about 30, <laughs> 30 years ago, you know. I remember other League Cup final. Well, maybe I don't, actually. But yeah, that's, uh, but well done, Villa, for doing that. That's good. And glad McGrath got... Uh, Got some silverware there. That's how his art, his Ireland career um, finishes with this Brian Adams concert. But in the book, his his club career just kind of just tails off a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> well, Johnny, he he ends it in the complete shit, doesn't he? <laughs> he ends up at Derby and Sheffield United, two more appalling teams you couldn't ask for. Like, <laughs> what a horrible way to end an illustrious career. You know what, uh, your man Jim Walker, the, the the physio was like, I loved Paul, but I was happy when he went. <laughs> I'd say, <laughs> say you were, Jim. Fucking hell. Like, yeah, so just a couple of things. Like, like for a fellow who kind of used football as his comfort blanket, like throughout his, his kind of very troubled life, you know, he's obviously going to struggle with the transition into not being a player. And this is when this book came out, the thing that people all talked about were these incidents where he drank the Domestos. So he drank Domestos twice, like absolutely bonkers, right? I mean, that's absolutely nuts. And then he's like, oh, well, best drink some water. Yeah. I didn't realize that would be good enough, like, frankly. Like, what? Yeah, yeah, crikey, but Domestos, blindly. So he, he drinks it. He says, I just lay down now. And then he says his chest was all just burning. And he said, oh, I think my, my insides are turning to sludge. And then he just drank water and he was fine. This yeah, is and not, he's still fine. This is not yeah, a, not good a great advert for kids. No, no, it's not. Like, uh, no. Yeah, if you feel your intake in, in it's burning, if you've drunk some bleach, make sure you drink some water. Call, <laughs> call an ambulance, kids. Call an ambulance. Yeah. I think I counted like maybe four near suicides or suicide attempts or, or, or like cries for help if you want which are whatever they were using pills there was he cut his wrists he drove the car into the wall he drank the mestos twice and he had another drink driving which uh crash which wasn't suicide attempt but yeah like jesus christ how did he survive all of these it's, it's quite remarkable but there's a there's a little passage i wanted to read he the snapshots of chaos are endless. One night in Dublin, I was picked up by the Gardaí, slumped in a narrow syringe-filled alley with drunks and down-and-outs, swigging from a cheap bottle of sherry. Another time I woke up alone in a caravan on a beach somewhere north of Dublin, where or how I got to either place has never been explained. The worst thing is afterwards is, is not knowing where you've been, who you've been with, what you, what you were doing. You tried to piece the jigsaw together and you dread the phone call saying, Jesus, you were in some state last night. And then he goes on, he says... You know, guilt kicks in ferociously afterwards. But guilt is routine in the addict's world. It never seems, but it never seems powerful enough to overcome the next temptation. It, that's very bleak, isn't it? It really is bleak. Yeah, it's, it, it is sad. And 
it's difficult to make a lot of jokes as i say it's not a funny book and he's not had a fun i guess at times he must have had fun right when he was hanging out with Whiteside as a kid or as a younger man it must have been fun see i think he did i think he did enjoy a lot of it that's the thing yes i think you're absolutely right there but he doesn't want to say that in the book yeah i think he did enjoy a lot of it i think he loved you know the glory of it fair enough i think most people probably do and i think that he was unable to drink and he he did some crazy self-destructive things but i think he did enjoy himself along the way and that's i hadn't read this book before but lots of people in ireland have like this was a big book in ireland it was written by a well-known like the ghostwriter is a well-known irish journalist vincent hogan it was a it was a big book at the time because because of mcgrath's profile and a lot of people talked about how bleak it was and that was kind of why i didn't read it actually but i did get the inkling even though he doesn't say it that he he did enjoy himself along the way yeah i'd say i'd say so and uh <clears throat> the last chapter is a uh, little tributes to him from various people important in his life. There's a funny story whereby Ferguson says he's at a dinner. Bertie O'Hearn, the Irish Prime Minister's there. There's two security guards. Bertie O'Hearn goes to the bathroom. The security guards don't go with him. He's like, why aren't they going with him? He's like, no, no, those security guards are for Paul McGrath like, to keep him out of trouble. It's like, blimey. And he says, bigger news in Ireland than the Prime Minister. Yeah. Going. <laughs> that was nice, that bit, wasn't it? Yeah. That was well, nice. But, but then... And this is my problem. The very final word in the book he leaves to his son, Jordan. He shouldn't carry any guilt over what we've been through because we don't carry any burdens. He's a good dad. It's still a really, really proud feeling just to be walking down the street with him. Oh, I didn't like that. Wheeling out your kid to say something nice about your dad after everything he's put him through. Domestos, domestos, cutting your wrists, all that business. And this is his younger kid, so maybe he's not been through as much. I found that unsavory. <laughs> unsavory. Yeah, well, I, I hear what you're saying, yeah. And, um, like, it's funny, I think, because he says repeatedly, like, he acknowledges the damage that he's done to his children and awful things that he's that he's he's put them through and he repeatedly describes himself as a coward but i think you are right when you say that he does kind of see himself a little bit removed from those actions yeah it wasn't paul mcgrath it was the alcoholic paul mcgrath yeah 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 that is interesting yeah i don't know what to do with that now I'll... <laughs> No, again, I'm not really hard on him because I do think, I mean, crikey, his his childhood made Joey Barton's childhood seem like a week in Disney World, right? I mean, it was horrible. And what he's been through has been genuinely incredibly traumatic. Yeah. Incredibly, right? No no kid should have that should have that childhood. And also the they just been a black orphan in in Ireland in his youth like like honestly, Al, I can tell you, I rem I remember the first time I saw a black person, and I grew up in Ireland in the eighties and the nineties. He was he was grown up like twenty years earlier. Like you couldn't, I couldn't think of a worse, you know, okay, war or whatever. But like, you know, no, that was, I understand that, what you're saying. Yeah, it must have been, he must have been exposed to so much racism, so much racism. So it much. just must have been astonishing, you know. Just a poor kid, and he's, he hasn't even got a loving family behind him to 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 withstand it. It's there. He's a poor kid in a 
Borstal, yeah, it's, yeah. It's a, ever such a sad story. Is yeah, there, there was there was a few bits there at the start which I found just really really heartbreaking. Really, like just to think of any kid in those kind of circumstances is just it's just horrible. Like, and the whole catatonic thing. I mean, that's that's some deep seated stuff. Like, I mean, crikey, Mikey. I mean, what happened there? Poor kid. Yeah, so in terms of the, the book, like, it's not a laugh. From an Irish perspective, it covers, like, you know, that kind of halcyon days of the Irish football team. Um, so that's a whole pile of fun. It's just, yeah, I like, I, re I really did enjoy it, but it's, it's, it's not something that you're going to be, you know, you're not going to be laughing as you turn the pages or anything. No, but it's, as a piece of literature, it is good, and it is an insight into the mind of an addict isn't it i think i could have done with a little bit more football and i could have done with a little bit more jollity but equally that is not the primary thing in his life eh? his addiction is his number one is his number one thing in his life and that must be awfully difficult for him but yeah i think like i think it was one of or maybe the best book that we've read so far so far i'm going to give i'm going to give it a four out of five yeah, I'll give it a four out of five. I think I'd read Wrighty's book again first, but uh, yeah, it's a good, it's a good book and a decent insight into the mind of Paul McGrath. And I would genuinely love to know how he's getting on now. Yeah, so that's Paul McGrath back from the brink, and I hope he is really back from the brink now. Thank you very much, Al, and I, I want to say thanks again to Colin Morgan and all the best against Saint Pat. Yeah, thanks very much indeed, folks. I believe our next book's going to be Peter Crouch. And do a little robot dance. Yeah, he did a robot dance, didn't he? Also, mm -hmm. I believe he's quite tall. <laughs> that's that's the book. We don't even have to do it. <laughs> the tall robot man. Is that what it's called? I think it is. Yeah. Is it called iRobot? <laughs> I don't think it is. <laughs> Very good. All right, then. So next time, fun laddish banter rather yeah. than a trip into despair. Top bands. Um, thank you and follow us on the old socials. We have a TikTok now, Al. Oh, TikTok. Thank you very much, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs>